Hello, everyone. Uh, I want to introduce the expert that we'll be talking to. His name is David Wexler. David is a clinical psychologist in private practice in San Diego, specializing in the treatment of relationships in conflict, including domestic violence cases. He is the executive director of the Nonprofit Relationship Training Institute, which provides education and treatment internationally for relationship development and the prevention and treatment of relationship violence. Dr. Wexler is the author of seven books on men's issues, including When Good Men Behave Badly, Men in Therapy, and the upcoming Me Too Informed Therapy. Dr. Wexler has authored an internationally recognized domestic violence treatment manual, the newly revised and updated STOP program, fourth edition, released by Norton in March 2020. He has also authored The Stop Program for Women Who Abuse, published by Norton in 2016. He has trained thousands of community professionals, military personnel, and law enforcement officials through extensive training seminars on the Stop Program model throughout the world. More than 60,000 domestic violence offenders have now been treated in the Stop Program. Dr. Wexler has also been featured on the Phil uh, or the Dr. Phil Show and the Today Show uh, in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, O Magazine, Cosmopolitan, Red Book, Men's Health, and on hundreds of radio and TV programs throughout North America to help educate the public about relationships and conflict and how to resolve them. Very impressive, David. I um, didn't realize you were on Oprah. Um, well, not Oprah. No, never made it to Oprah. I was on Dr. Phil. Oh, and yeah. okay. and you, were in her, you were in her magazine. I was in O Magazine, right. Yeah, not quite the same. Very impressed. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. I also really like the uh, recent article that you wrote for the special issue of the journal Partner Abuse. So thank you again for that. Uh, and we're going to, that's what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about, uh, while you have a pretty comprehensive understanding of domestic violence and um, the research and the clinical approaches to working with offenders. Uh, today we're going to focus on female offenders because that's a topic that's not discussed quite as, as much. So, you know, and you and I have talked briefly about uh, an email exchanged about some of the differences and similarities between male offenders and female offenders. And um, I think we're pretty much aligned on, on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wanted to get your, uh, your uh, input on uh, what it's like to work with female offenders. Uh, there's a lot of controversy around that. Maybe we can resolve some of that, shed some light on it. A lot of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast are working with female offenders and maybe they're new in the field and maybe they, they could benefit from some, uh, some insights from you. So, uh, so let's get started. I, I guess we'll get started with a, a question regarding one of the controversies about uh, female offenders, which is, it goes something like this. Yes, there are women who are violent, and yes, uh, surveys show that half of individuals who are asked about whether they've ever been violent towards their partner, uh, half of those people surveyed will be women in any you know large survey. Right. But uh, the argument goes uh, something like, well, yes, women do hit men, but they generally do so in self-defense. They rarely initiate. Yes, there are some women who are pretty violent and aggressive, but for the most part, women uh, retaliate or they're acting in self-defense, or yes, they do initiate, but it's uh, out of anger rather than out of a need to control. And so there are all these caveats. And uh, my experience doing women's groups myself over the years is that sometimes uh, 
those caveats get in the way of helping them take responsibility. On the other hand, there are differences. Men are much stronger, blah, blah, blah. So uh, uh, anyway, do you think that um, do you think that that female offenders are, are uh, should be regarded primarily as victims, as some women's advocates uh, would suggest, or are they pretty much like men and they they are a heterogeneous group and some of them are quite violent and some of them are victims? Uh, <clears throat> I think heterogeneous is really the right uh, word for this. You know, we. Uh, uh, I was first trained in domestic violence uh, treatment and the models for domestic violence in uh, the mid to late 1980s. And, you know, as, as you pointed out, the prevailing model then was, you know, we thought we knew it. We thought all men, all men who committed domestic violence were dominated by power and control issues. And any women who acted violently were uh, either direct self-defense or kind of indirect self-defense, like they've been abused and beaten by him so many years, they finally had it and, and responded. And what we've seen over the years is that those, those cases do exist. I mean, that, that model emerged for a reason, but there's so many other types, and both, both with the men that we work with and with the women. So in answer to your question about should we see them as primarily victims, I would say uh, sometimes yes. I mean, some of the, the women who come my way who are uh, who become who've been busted for female uh, domestic violence incident? I think they're primarily a victim in an ongoing long-term relationship, and that's the number one problem. But there are pl plenty of other women who are in who I think are much more primary aggressors, which we didn't really used to believe existed, and a whole third category, which is women who are in uh, this sort of difficult to define category called bi-directional uh, where you know there's there really is uh, both psychological and physical aggression going back and forth that is approximately equal and um, we we both know that um, when things start to escalate really high it's more likely men doing serious damage to women but in more mild to moderate domestic violence cases there's a fair amount of truly bi-directional violence and that's that represents another uh, slice of the pie of the female offenders that we end up treating. Right, right. So I agree with everything you're saying. One one question I've that I've I've had for many years, and I've been struggling with this. And I often I pose this question rhetorically at trainings that I do, and I I get various feedback on it. Is aren't almost all our clients victims on some level? In other words, uh, most of our clients, especially the ones who or engaging in more consequential violence, the ones who are punching their partners, using weapons, uh, or repeat offenders, or are quite emotionally abusive. Wouldn't you say that the ma vast majority of them come from abusive backgrounds? So, my question is this: uh, When, when is your victimology no longer apply? In other words, uh, a man who beats up his his girlfriend repeatedly but who was molested as a child or seriously abused as a child, is he a victim? Uh, is there a time limit for being a victim? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, it, that's the question I have because everyone's really, every, almost all of our clients are victims of, of some kind of abuse. And what you were talking about is in the current relationship, if somebody's in a relationship and they've been experiencing ongoing uh, violence by their partner, violence that's pretty scary and they are, you know, doing something to try to protect themselves 
even if it's, uh, according to the battered woman's defense, if it's a behavior that may be, you know, instigated and started by the, the woman, but mm -hmm. in an attempt to prevent what she believes is a reasonable danger to her, we can see that that's clearly a, a pattern of someone being victimized. But what about a relationship where it starts off with maybe the man is the violent one in a relationship, and for a period of a few years, he's the violent one, and then he becomes more mutual. Uh, then it gets kind of fuzzy, doesn't it? And uh, so I'm just wondering if you could speak about that. How I guess the key question is, how do you hold people accountable uh, in a group, everyone accountable, given that they have different stories, and some of them truly are victims of current violence, and some of them may only have been victimized in the past, and it's really no longer as relevant. So how do you, how do you uh, address all of their needs uh, and hold them accountable, even though they have different backgrounds and different levels of culpability, I guess is the question. Yeah, that's uh, a very good question and, and complex to, um, to, to enact in, in the actual cl in the clinical setting, because it seems like uh, in a lot of the, uh, I would say this is even more true in the female groups than in male groups, but it's at least somewhat true in the male groups. Um, the, when I sit in a group with female offenders, there is a lot of history of trauma in that room. You can just you can just feel it in the air. And if you look into these people's, uh, a lot of the women's uh, histories, you see evidence of it. And so we have to be respectful of the fact that of their histories of being uh, trauma or victimized in some way, and almost always we're talking about, for, for the women here, traumatized by men in some way, by fathers, by previous boyfriends, by their current partner, by, uh, you know, sexual assault, by, I mean, the different, a lot of the things that men do to women. Um, especially so, sexual assault, right? Especially sexual assault, right. So, so if we somehow, with the way I look at it is if in that in that treatment setting, if we um, ignored the victim experience, we would be really missing out on, uh, well, first of all, it would be difficult to connect with these women because that's a very part, key part of their history. But also we'd be missing out on some of the, the key triggers for the violence that they commit. But if we, but I, and I know groups that have made this mistake, if we spend too much time talking about their experience as victims, then, and I think, as, as you're alluding to, we run the risk of creating a kind of a narrative of abdication of responsibility. The, you know, we, we, we never, ever, ever would want to communicate since you were, you've had a tough childhood or since you've been treated badly by men, therefore, you're not really responsible for what you do. I mean, that, that's the... You know that that would be the antithesis of the message uh, that we're trying to send. So it it really is a, 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 in, in terms of the clinical setting, it's a tough balancing act. But it but that's part of the you know it's part of why we all get paid the big bucks to do all these these tough tough jobs to uh, to honor the the victim experiences and still make sure that those that the that those experiences are not used as rationalization or justification for payback, retaliation, I just get out of control, or any of the other kind of uh, uh, responsibility-reducing uh, mindsets that people have. What I find with, uh, and your point is really well taken, that practically everybody 
men or women who end up in our programs uh, can report some personal trauma or or history of some sort of what we would call being victimized by something significant in their lives. Um, but I do think that w one key distinction is that for the men, the, the traumas they've experienced is not usually uh, at the hands of women. Uh, but for the, the women, uh, it's, it, it's, it is, it's usually at the hands of men, and that complicates the, the, the issues that, that we're dealing with. Um, so that, that's just one, one distinction I see between the men's group and the women's groups. Good point. Good point, David. You know, I hadn't thought of that. haven't heard anyone mention that in a while. That's a really good point. That uh, aside from some women in same-sex relationships, the much of the trauma they experience will be from other men, whereas uh, whereas men will have been traumatized perhaps by their as children by their mothers or fathers or in, in a men have, that have been in seen military combat or have had serious accidents and so forth. Um, yeah, it's a good point. The research shows that um, men are much more likely to be arrested than women. And right. mandatory arrest states like California, um, and this is my opinion based on my 28 years of working with male and female offenders, as well as, you know, looking at the research evidence, uh, the because we men are the ones that tend to get arrested in, in mandatory arrest states where it doesn't take a lot for someone to get arrested. You have a lot of men who are arrested. Uh, who are first-time offenders, low-level offenders. They're not pathological. They're kind of normal guys, but maybe they drink too much or they don't handle their anger very well. And yeah, they need to be in a program, but they, they may not fit the definition of a batterer per se as a highly controlling person. Women aren't likely to get, as, to get arrested as often as men. This is my theory. You tell me if you agree with me. And so the ones that do get arrested tend to be more pathological. They just tend to stand out more. Um, so, because that's been my observation, uh, David, I agree. The women in our groups just seem to be more uh, traumatized. Uh, they have more problems. They not only have more trauma, but they have, they're more likely to have personality disorders and to have all kinds of living problems. And I'm just wondering if some of the, one of the reasons why you see more trauma is just because it's more the, the there's the higher concentration of more serious offenders amongst women than amongst men. If if you if you know what I mean regarding the you know given the the way that we our arrest policies, your mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Or do you think there's other uh, reasons for it? I, I have I have never thought of that before. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a that's a very interesting idea, and I and it, now now that I've had about ninety seconds to think about <laughs> it, I think I think it's uh, I think. That's a very good, uh, a very credible theory. I do want to follow up on one point you just made, uh, that th the research definitely tells us, and this is based, and I'm, I'm sure you see this and I see this clinically, that the the mean levels or the frequency of um, more significant personality disorders in a female group is higher than it is in a, in a male group. And the research tells us that the, you know, um, uh, cluster B personality disorders, you know, which is antisocial, uh, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic, right. uh, is higher level uh, among the female offenders that we that actually make it to our group at least, yeah, uh, than uh, than in a in a male group. And so, what that means cl uh, clinically is that 
there's more emotional intensity. I mean, you know, we all know what it's like to work with borderlines or, or highly narcissistic people. Uh, there's more emotional intensity in that in that clinical room. Uh, there's more uh, protest behavior uh, about uh, how the you know the group isn't doing what I wanted to wanted to be. I mean, there's more express, expressiveness for better or for worse um, from the women in the program. There's and there's more um, and in my experience, there's more um, abdication of responsibility and projection of blame, which we know is really goes with a lot of character disorders. Uh, so many, uh, you know, there's plenty of men who don't take very good responsibility for their own behavior, uh, their own uh, aggressive behavior. But among the females, uh, that is even, uh, we see that at an even greater level. We see, uh, I see so commonly women who are very forthcoming about what they did. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, I, I you know, took that, uh, you know, that, baseball bat or something and I you know and I, and I smashed him right across the, you know right across his back or I scratched his face yeah I did it but I did it because of the way he was treating me he's a jerk or I, yeah right. yeah or I did it because you know uh, I think he was cheating on me or something like that I mean it's like the the the, the mindset is so often that the the, uh, the the sense of agency is not within the, the locus of control seems external like yeah, I did it, but but that's what's going to happen when he uh, in response for you know to the behavior that that he that he was generating, and it's not black and white. Of course, we hear that from men, and we don't hear that from every woman. But I would say that is a more common theme in the female DV population than we see in the male population. Yeah, I, and my observations uh, match yours, David. Uh, I've been uh, I often will say this when I do trainings that men are more likely to be overtly in denial about their, their violence. Women are more likely to admit the cop to the behavior, mm -hmm. but women tend to minimize it. And I, I wonder if, if you agree with me that this may just be playing into the cultural stereotypes that we have about women, that women are not agentic, that they're, they're, uh, that they're reactive, that they're emotional. And I'm wondering if, you know, because that, that's what I think it is. I think a lot of women have sort of internalized this idea that, um, that, that they are emotional. Maybe, and I don't know whether these, the female offenders are being, um, whether they're conscious of being manipulative or whether it's just something that you just sort of believe because it's part of a culture. What, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that it, that's, it, that's a very common phenomenon. And, and, I think a lot of men who are in relationships with, you know, aggressive or explosive women uh, collude with them to uh, to generate that narrative together that when she goes off, it's like, oh, well, she just gets angry or, you know, she she doesn't mean to do these things. But, uh, you know, she's she's just sort of she's pretty expressive, you know, like, you know, you know, the way women are, how they're really expressive is sort of the, the mindset there. He's on her, and, he's on her period. That, right. That, yeah. Right. Right. Um, right. That, that one always works really well in, in most relationships. Yeah. Um, but um, right. the uh, but but there is, a, I think, a, a collective mindset or or a, or a story that, that gets created uh, in couples and in, and in uh, among the general public uh, that female 
uh, violence is just is sort of well a woman getting a little bit too emotional, whereas male violence is men being, you know, domineering um, and a, a power-driven uh, male figures. Or I don't know if I use the right term, but I think you get what I mean. And so, so a, a lot of uh, therefore a lot of uh, female violence is minimized. And secondly, the question that that so many people automatically have when they hear about a woman who became violent in some way is, what must he have been doing to her all this time that would make her do that? And we, I mean, sometimes you might hear that about a male violence, like, well, he must be, his wife must be really difficult if he had to do that. But that's much more, much less common. That's, a, it's, it's very common. Well, it's taboo now. I'm sorry, say it again? Well, it's kind of a taboo. I mean, 40 years ago, that was the common excuse. You know, she nagged me all day. And right. we learned over the years, and we, we were we all learned from uh, bad women's advocates who taught us well that, no, there's there's no, nagging is not an excuse to beat your wife. Well, right. but, yeah. um, I think that we, we as a society, uh, we've been slow to sort of apply those standards to the female offenders as well, I think. Right, yeah. yeah. And so, and um, and I think that there is, you know, there's there's an automatic reaction to, to assume that a woman who has, who has, you know, the woman's come to the end of her rope and, and 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 has, and just explodes in some way, that you know nobody thinks that's like a good thing, but it but but it's the the instinctive reaction or instinctive thought pattern that many people have is, that the guy must have driven her to do that, and I mean. In a certain percentage of cases, that's actually a very, uh, very accurate. Um, I think that's very credible in some a certain percentage of stories, but in plenty of other ones, that's just the wrong assumption to make. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, lest anyone listening uh, starts to think that well, we're we just are saying it's all the same. You know, we both know it's not because it, especially uh, well at when it when it comes to the majority of domestic violence, which tends to be lower level. There are not real major serious injuries. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's very much the same in many ways. But when it comes to more consequential violence, uh, men's violence is so much scarier. There's just no comparison. Uh, unless a woman is using a knife or a gun, uh, a woman that, uh, no matter how angry she is, uh, she can punch her husband as hard as she can. And usually, unless she's pretty big or knows martial arts, she's he's going to be able to defend himself. He's there for right. Far less likely to be terrified of her. When I hear about uh, intimate terrorism, that when that term is used regarding offenders, I think, well, women can terrorize emotionally for sure. Men may be very scared that they're going to lose their children. They may be scared that their wives will embarrass them in public and make fun of them. Uh, they may be, they may be seriously shell shocked by the psychological abuse that they uh, endure, but except for some outlier cases where the woman actually is willing to use a weapon, uh, the average male victim is, is just not afraid for his life the way some women are. And I think that's a very big difference. I think that's where where there's a major distinction. And, and also with sexual abuse, men just don't experience uh, sexual abuse, uh, especially you know rape, forcible sexual abuse to women the way women do. So all those factor into the equation. So uh, given all, all that, 
Do you think that there should be a separate curriculum for men and women? Do you have separate curriculum? We have the same curriculum for men and women, but we have, uh, we sort of, our, our facilitators kind of run the programs a little different given that women relate to one another differently than men do. So how, how do you do it in terms of the curriculum and in terms of the process by which you engage the women and you run your groups? Well, we do have a separate curriculum. We've had a men's curriculum um, that we keep updating that's been published uh, over 20 years now. Uh, and, and we always worked, we experimented with a women's curriculum, but then, but actually published, uh, as, I, as you mentioned in my bio at the beginning, my intro in the beginning, the STOP program for women who, who abuse. We published that in 2016. And the way I, I would conceptualize that curriculum, which is, different is that um, it's about, I'd say, 60 to 65 percent the same, um, because there are, as many wise people have pointed out in this field, uh, although there are differences between male and female violence, there are more similarities than there are differences. Some of these, some of these things are just humans breaking down in some way in their managing of a relationship and resorting to very... Uh, you know, destructive tactics to try to express themselves or get their way. Uh, but there are enough different, no, enough different uh, experiences that women have or issues that women have uh, that I think it's, it is worth having a, a, a curriculum that's designed somewhat differently. Okay, give, uh, give me some examples, David, of some, uh, some topics that uh, you would uh, have in your female curriculum versus the male curriculum. Uh, we spend more time focusing on um, accountability issues that, that what we were just talking about a few minutes ago about uh, taking taking personal responsibility. Uh, we have some of that, of course, in the men's group, but there's but we emphasize that even more in the women's program. There's several different sessions that really focus on that. There's also uh, a number of sessions focusing on um, uh, self-worth and empowerment and assertiveness. Uh, way more than we do in the men's program uh, because a lot of the – a certain subcategory of the women we're, we're treating uh, are not um, sort of more more antisocial or, or, or uh, criminal type people, although some of them are. Um, but their, their pathway to ending up becoming violent is that they have felt really passive, submissive. Ex uh, excessively controlled and deferential to various men in their life, maybe beginning with their father, a and the, the, and what happens is they are they're in that role and they stay in that role and they're more and more frustrated and then <clears throat> they know the pressure cooker bursts and they they think the only way that they can feel uh, can sort of feel whole is by going to the other extreme and be and really being heard by being aggressive, and so those women really need a lot more training about how to how to communicate in this more how to have a voice that's more constructive and assertiveness how to feel more empowered in their relationships how to set boundaries in their relationships uh, how to um, be more uh, create more equality and decision making in their relationships so there, so that's another element that we have uh, that's more emphasized and we spend more time talking about trauma histories. Uh, the, the women in, in, in these settings, 
need to talk about the ways in which they have been uh, really uh, hurt or victimized, particularly hurt or victimized by men. And as I said before, we don't want to let that run amok because that could consume the entire group program. Um, but we have both in the actual content of some of the curriculum as well as just in the the, the training that we do, we, uh, we uh, guide our clinicians to do, uh, we, we, we allow more room to talk about uh, some of the different trauma experiences. So those are some of, the, uh, some of the highlights. The actual group sessions we have, I'm actually looking at my, the roster of sessions. There's about, uh, of the 26 sessions in our program, there's about nine of them that, are, that don't exist in the men's program. Uh, and uh, the, the other ones are essentially the same as we have in the men's program. Okay, okay, so, right. I, I used to, my program used to be a 26-week program uh, and over the years, I've refined it. Uh, I now have a 16-week core program, 16 core lessons. But uh, when we repeat the cycle three times in a one-year period, with different handouts, so that it's you know, mm -hmm. okay. Um, I've seen other programs uh, like yours where for 26 weeks or 52 weeks there are different topics. So. When you expand the number of topics, I can see where it would make sense to have a, a somewhat different topics for the females and so, uh, than compared to the males. In a, with a sixteen-week core program, it's 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 something that applies to everyone. So right, yeah. So that's but uh, in our program, what we do is we we focus on issues of interest to women as part of the conversation in the group rather than as a formal part of the curriculum. So that's sure. that's the yeah. big difference. Yeah. It's a matter of, of how you structure it, but uh, yeah, but I, yes, women uh, women do uh, need to talk more about their trauma. They yes, they they. Isn't it ironic, David, that uh, that women who actually are assertive, I mean, properly assertive, and aren't hysterical and and you know meet fit those stereotypes of the emotional women, those women become successful business people, and they're often uh, called names, and they're a lot of misogynistic men see them as threats. Uh, right. So you can't you can't win from losing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about the uh, how you what what a typical female group would look like, the feel of it, how the women relate to each other, uh, how the facilitate the facilitators expectations above and beyond the curriculum topics, the the process mm -hmm. that's going on. How, do, how does how does it differ from the the men? You know, as we know, with the men especially the younger guys, they tend to jockey for position in the group. Uh, some, they tend to collude at times. Uh, they, sometimes they try to out-macho each other. So, you know, we have to rein them in, et cetera, et cetera. We have to teach them uh, what emotions are other than anger and, and, and stress. Right. How's, how does it feel to do a women's group compared to doing a men's group? Well, there's a, a, a number of things that I think uh, show up differently or again it's not black and white but more frequently or more extensively one is um, the uh, issues of assertiveness you know we teach the same basic assertive package I mean it's just you know it's a skills package to both the men and the women uh, but for a lot of the women what <laughs> we'll, we'll teach them the assertiveness thing 
Then they seem to get it in the group. Then they go home and we check in with them later. Like, you know, so did you try out some of the assertiveness skills at home? And um, we'll get a response like, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I told my uh, I got good and assertive with my boyfriend. I told him to get off his fat ass and start doing something around here for a change. Right. And so and so, you know, we have to point out, well, you got half of the assertiveness thing down, the clear communication. But you forgot about the other half, which is not doing it in an aggressive way and what and um with the with the men you know they're they they're they usually say oh, okay i gotta work on that or whatever but a lot of the women really are offended by that they they feel like they're being told again that they have to defer to men that they have to craft how they're saying in a nice little sweet way that's very um you know deferential to the uh, to, to the to the male ego and doing it just the right time when he's in the mood and they say you know I'm tired of that crap I've been doing that all my life I'm not going to do that anymore yeah. and it's a much it's a it's a tougher sell to do that and yeah. uh, you know we have some ways to try to respond to that but uh, that's one issue that that comes up somewhat differently and another one that it, that shows up differently is the women are get much more emotionally attached in this program not only to each other, but also to the group leaders. And so we found that when, uh, I mean, maybe the guys are attached too and they just don't express it as much, I don't know, but, but the women express it more. When we have therapist turnover, which, you know, in any uh, one of our programs, there's interns coming and going or people shifting jobs. Uh, we find that it's not enough to just tell them a couple weeks in advance, oh, by the way, there's going to be a new group leader in a couple weeks. We've, we now tell them, try to tell them six weeks in advance so that they have plenty of times to try to process the grieving that they're going through about the attachment that they formed with this person and how they're going to miss this person and they're worried about what the new group leader is going to be like. And new group leaders coming in, it's often a much tougher road to hoe to, to, for the women to feel, more, to feel uh, safe and more comfortable. I've heard, you know, we have women saying, I don't feel like I can talk today because this new person is in here and I don't know her yet or I don't know him yet. And likewise with new group members coming up, coming in, it's more of a, um, there's more um, expressed, it, it stirs up more of their safety and security issues, uh, at least it's, they express those things more than we see in the, in the men's groups. Oh, I, uh, I don't, I can't even recall a time where a man has actually said that. In other words. Yeah, I agree. Right. I mean, there, yeah. there are men obviously who feel uncomfortable with the new facilitator but they usually act out instead of saying you know uh, here are my feelings about it they usually just shit right. clam up or they get sarcastic or they, they test you and the other thing that very related to that is that the women are much more likely to want to talk about the group the interpersonal group dynamics in in the ways that you know is true in like a traditional therapy group uh like uh i remember one woman saying that at the beginning of a session that um uh, she noticed that last week, two of the other women were, were walked out together and were talking about going to Starbucks. And she said, and I, a couple of weeks ago, I had said, hey, maybe we should all go out to coffee and nobody wanted to do that. And now I feel like you're excluding me and now I don't feel safe talking in this group. And we need to really process, you know, my feelings about this and our different relationships. And I can guarantee you that conversation has never happened in a men's domestic oh, violence group. No. Right. Uh, but, well, maybe. You know what? Over 28 years, I probably had a couple of guys talk in, 
in a similar way and they were considered to be total outliers like what's right. wrong with this guy here you know yeah yeah right yeah so so these i mean it's just that's just some sort of uh some themes and anecdotal examples of ways in which the group experience is, is uh in the female group is different uh and i i think the one well, the one thing I would emphasize most is that there is really a strong like tidal wave, a pull in the women's groups very often to turn this into a victim's group, turn this into a group where we are primarily talking about uh, how badly we've been treated by men and get support for doing that. And there's a place to do that. I mean, there is, you know, there's real value in, in women being part of a group of other women who have, who have suffered in different, in similar ways. But this group can't get can't get transformed into being that kind of a group experience. We have to do some of it, but the, uh, I, I really have to work a lot with group leaders who are who are somewhat reluctant to sort of push very hard, or don't want to be seen as being insensitive to the victim experiences when they, uh, but they need to. The group leaders need to find a way to redirect the the group program so that the women recognize their own, the things that they have the, the mistakes that they have made and the the behavioral changes they they, they need to make and that they also uh, focus time on developing skills packages to do some things differently. It's not it's really not enough to just talk about your feelings. Uh, you got to talk about your feelings and also develop new uh, tools and skills. And I think any good domestic violence program for men or women uh, really has to have both of those elements. Yeah, no, very well said. Um, so beginning in March, when the COVID epidemic hit uh, and we were all sheltering in place, I, I had a, I just started doing a lot of reading uh, uh, in both evolutionary psychology as well as reading on, uh, reading about uh, gender roles. And I actually read three Three, uh, three books written uh, on uh, women's issues and gender roles, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, just trying to get an understanding of, of these sex differences and are they innate, are they cultural, what explains differences between men and women in general and male and female offenders of domestic violence specifically. And uh, one of the things that just stands out is for whatever reason, whether it's just uh, it's an evolutionary trend or whether it's sex roles imposed by society, um, a lot of our of offenders sort of they sort of fall into those roles naturally. So I was thinking about that when you were talking about the women who tend to want to talk about their victimhood. It yeah. just seems a part part of that is just falling into those roles that society gives women that. Um, that for women to, and I tell this, I, I've had ongoing conversations with battered women's advocates over the years, and I've pointed out to them that isn't it insulting to tell a woman that, offender, that she's, you know, she's just a victim? Isn't that disempowering? Do you tell that to women that want to <clears throat> go into business, the women that want to be successful in life? Don't you tell them the opposite? Why are you giving this message, you know, to Right of, of of lack of empowerment and victimhood to uh, to all female offenders and and uh, I think there's a resistance because let's let's be frank up until very recently 
women have been quite subjugated, even in Western societies, dominated by men. And so women, in order to survive, have had to develop uh, certain approaches to working with, to dealing with, with their husbands and boyfriends that, you know, let's frankly call, call it what it is. It's manipulation, mm -hmm. hiding money, uh, finding ways to uh, get around his, you know, bossiness and his uh, fiats. And I'm just wondering if just centuries of that uh, has not caused women to, at least on some level, some of, some women to sort of resist taking on this more assertive role because maybe it's not always in their interest to take responsibility, if you, if you know what I mean. Right. Uh, in other words, the idea is that we want to we want to be able to be seen as equals, uh, you know, in the workplace, for example, and not be uh, shot down because we're being assertive. But when it comes to relationships, we have, should have that extra edge. I don't know. I, I get that. I get that feeling sometimes from better women's advocates that um, they don't think that these women are have a sense of agency. And it just seems to be a contradiction there. So and yet, yes, I, I do find that the women are difficult sometimes to get them to buy into the idea that they can make choices and that uh, that if they learn these skills that it can make a difference in their life and and so right forth. yeah yeah and i guess one other piece to that theme is that uh what we hear more often in the women's groups than the men's groups is i just i got into a certain i got out of control and i couldn't stop myself that once I once I get emotional, then uh, it's almost they don't exactly say these words, but the implication is once I get emotional, I'm not responsible because I it's just something takes over and I have to act a certain way. And like and like I've said with several other issues, we certainly hear some men saying that, but I hear that more frequently uh, among uh, among the women, and that is a uh, a. A, a story, a narrative that really needs to be, you know, respectfully challenged. There, there is, I, I don't believe that such a thing that that, that uh, phenomenon actually happens. That somebody is reaches an emotional state where they are where they are really not in control. They might feel like right on the edge of not being in control, but ultimately, um, you know, we keep want to keep hammering away at this idea that uh, you still have. Uh, uh, control or um, uh, well, the, the personal agency to make your own decisions, even under some difficult conditions. So that's part of the the empowerment message uh, that you're talking about. Also, do you have any particular exercises that uh, help your clients to you know learn that learn that lesson? We um, there's one interesting thing that we use um, from. Uh, that I read in an interview with uh, Terry Real, and I don't know if you know his work, but uh, he, he's written a lot of book about men's issues and couples' issues. Mm -hmm. And he has a, 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 a clinical anecdote uh, that we have uh, borrowed and we use this consistently in both the men's and women's groups about working with a, a, a rageaholic woman who, was, who hated herself because she was terrorizing her family. And to make a long story short, he said to her, you have my permission to rage at your husband in front of your kids. But what you need to do before, just before you do that is take out a picture of your kids, look at them and say, 
I know that what I'm about to do to you is going to cause you deep and irreparable harm. But right now, my needs are more important to me than you, so screw you. <laughs> okay. And so, you know, and the woman bursts into tears and says, I can't do that. And he says to her, you know, but you are doing that every time that you go off on, on, uh, on your husband in front of your kids. And so, you know, the moral of that story is we want to Im implant some scary image uh, among our clientele here about what real damage will be done that if they if they if they jump off that particular cliff of actually you know becoming violent or screaming or whatever the the damaging act is uh that if they actually go there this re something really precious to them uh is going to be uh damaged and in this case and, and appealing to the uh, impact on your kids is a very powerful one and we use that story and that image consistently just to try to implant some of that uh, that that last minute mindset in, into their into their minds that hopefully will create one last ability to govern the uh, uh, the over the top response. I mean, it doesn't always work. <laughs> Obviously, none none of these things these things are way too complicated to have a, a any uh, you know guaranteed technique but that's one of the ways we try to chip away at that mentality excellent i really like that we have our own techniques we have one handout where we ask an individual to imagine they're about to scream at their wife and um, i magically uh, appear in their in their house with a suitcase with a million dollars and i ask them if they want to scream or do they want the million dollars we have another one where so That's you're good. about to yeah. yell at your wife and she pulls out a, a, a gun and she puts it to your points, points it at your head and says, go ahead, yell at me and you're, you're dead. So we have our own ways uh -huh. of, of trying to get people to imagine in these thought experiments what it would be like to have to make that choice, which, of course, negates the idea that they're out of control. You know, right. Yeah, those are good. Yeah. 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 What, so we're kind of winding up our interview here, David, so far. You've been great. It's one of the best interviews I've ever conducted uh, mm, for the you. ADVIP organization. Uh, so thank you. Any f final thoughts on um, how collectively as mental health providers we can uh, better uh, help female offenders? You've, you've talked about your clinical techniques. Uh, are there policy uh, changes that you think could be made or uh, educational reforms or I don't know uh, any further thoughts on how we can advance evidence-based practice working with uh, female offenders in particular well I guess I would just go back to some of the uh, one of the themes that you and I've been talking about is that uh, just like with what we've learned over the years with male offenders we have to recognize that uh, the one-size-fits-all model just does not does not work or just does, does, does not help us. And uh, I really, and, and I, th I guess I would want to cultivate, and those of us who are actually doing the, the, the clinical interventions, to cultivate this awareness that when you're sitting in a room with female offenders, there are multiple different pathways that these women have, have uh, traveled on to get into this particular room. And some of them, their pathway has been because they have... Uh, some drug and alcohol problems and some of them is because that they have 
some uh, really significant insecure attachment issues and others because they've been so traumatized by men historically that they have that this is they, f they just feel like they have to retaliate and take it out on men and others because they kind of have a more traditional antisocial attitude and others because they're in a they've chosen the wrong guy and they're in a really dysfunctional relationship that brings out the worst qualities in them and some women have you know check off several different boxes from those uh, from that uh, on those items and the more that we can uh, recognize the, the different stories here um, Oh, and of course, another one, key one on the list is some some of the women in our program are there because they are really being terrorized by men in their life, the man in their life, and they uh, chose to respond in some way, but they're really primarily a victim. I and mean, that that that's right. a certain certain percentage of people. The more that we can really be open, be educated about, and then be open to the different stories, uh, I think that is just just absolutely essential in our work. And that, that would be the, the parting note of, a piece of wisdom I'd want to pass on to other people working in the field. Well, thank you again, David. I, I recommend that everyone who's been listening to this podcast contact David if they have any questions um, and also to read his article in, this, in the, the two-part special issue on domestic violence interventions fe featured in this year's uh, Partner Abuse Journal. Thank you again, David. I appreciate you conducting this interview with me, and uh, let's keep in touch. Okay, great dialogue with you, John. I really appreciate it.